Hello and welcome to Say That, podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. Now, nutrition facts about Jed are available. <laughs> That's right. The amount of sodium might shock you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're also joined all in Mercer, Tennessee by Lee Younger. You guys didn't hear this because it was happened right before we hit record, but Jed quoted, maybe, maybe inadvertently, but my favorite character from the show Community, which I'm now watching with my son. And uh, that was really fun for me. That's right. Jed yelled pop, pop, as he does before every recording. <laughs> <laughs> no, Matt. Magnetic oh. attitude. Wow. Uh, that's right. I have been, I have been had. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We've got a great show lined up for you. We've got some of your amazing questions. But first, we start with a Super Bowl emergency. What? Oh. That's right. As this comes out. Did we the, run out of Doritos? Well, that would just be a general emergency. Uh, well, is it is it like a bowl that you think is really super and it's broken and so that's the emergency? That's right. Oh, bad. I broke grandmama's bowl. <laughs> she paid for it with camel points and it was her favorite. <laughs> <laughs> for people under a certain age, that's going to sound like a joke, but it's not. You if you smoked enough it's cigarettes, not. they they would send you things from a catalog. That was the way the world yeah. worked. Come to Marlboro Country. It's where the flavor is. <laughs> That's right. No, this is neither a super bowl, a superb owl, a la what we do in the shadows. This is referring to the NFL championship game and noted commercial venue. Ah. Over the years, you know, you've got your, uh, I believe last year it was, uh, a lot of celebrities who didn't know what crypto was doing ads for crypto before that all went. Yeah. Totally blew yeah. Up. Everybody remember Matt Damon being like, you don't invest in crypto. What are you scared? And then everyone <laughs> lost all their money. So should have goodwill hunting to that a little bit more. I think Matt should have yeah. thought through that one. But, uh, so this year we have, uh, on coming up this weekend, I believe as you listen to this, there's going to be the Super Bowl, I believe. As we record, it was just decided that it will be the Philadelphia Eagles against the Kansas City Chiefs in a battle for uh, which city has the sandwich that clogs the most arteries. <laughs> <laughs> so we've and we've touched on something before, which is an ad campaign, an ad ah. campaign called He Gets Us. If you've watched any amount of uh, television. In the especially in the football season, you may have noticed these, and they're kind of kind of look like stock ads, really, and they're just kind of a thing. And but he gets us, and it's a very uh, warm and fuzzy thing about uh, Jesus. It's it feels a lot like what they would show at a conference, kind of in between things, that kind of yeah. deal. Um. So, but they're not content to just do billboards, YouTube ads, television ads. They're going for the big enchilada. I read a headline from uh, the Roy's report at julieroys.com. He gets us organizers set to spend $1 billion oh, to promote man. Jesus. Wow. Will anyone? Wow. And this is still in the headline. And this is why we appreciate both the Roy's report and uh, Bob Smetana who wrote this article. Will anyone care? <laughs> incredible man i've seen the commercials 
And I've just got to say, the very first time I saw one, I thought it was a, um, I thought it was like one, like a local politics ad, like one of the local politics positive ads. And at the end of it, it was going to be, you know, my name is Matthew King and I approve this message. Vote for MattKing.com or whatever. And, and then it was about Jesus. And I was like, well, that was on the level of like a local, like state legislature campaign. But now we're going to have one that's a billion dollars. Yeah. What I thought when I first saw them, Lee, is, and we, we were all on the, the in professional ministry during the, when the pandemic started. And like, uh, Jed already had a fair amount of experience in filmmaking, but people like Lee and myself kind of had to, uh, start learning to do video content overnight. And one yep. of the things you learn when you have to do a lot of that is it's really easy to put some text over an image and just kind of switch between those. And that counts as a video. And it had yeah. big, we, uh, we made the youth intern learn how to use Premiere Pro overnight, except they spent hundreds of millions of dollars so far doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you whatever money they're raising it's not going into the production. Like it's not a necessity, a necessary part of the production is what I mean by that. Somebody's pocketing this. Certainly would seem that way for the past 10 months. The, he gets us ads have shown up on billboards, YouTube channels and television screens. Most recently during the NFL playoff games across the country, all spreading the message that Jesus understands the human condition. I don't know that even people who don't care for Jesus or Christianity as a whole, I don't know that that was ever really in doubt. <laughs> like there's a lot of critiques of Christianity of Christians. Um, we, we hear a lot. We engage in a lot of them. We engage some of them on this show. Um, Jesus doesn't understand folks is not really one I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So uh, there's some examples of some of these ideas in 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 this article. The top one is uh, subtitled "A Vegas Themed He Gets Us Campaign Advertising at Harmon's Corner in Las Vegas." So this is like a giant's uh, shopping mall, maybe a couple of hotels in Vegas. And the text reads, "I'm not making this up. Jesus went all in too." <laughs> wow. <What? laughs> Oh, gosh. Wow. <laughs> a digital billboard for the He Gets Us campaigns in New York City's Times Square reads, Jesus welcomed the huddled masses, which I assume is a reference to the Black Sabbath song. <laughs> this is like a this is like a Dabo Swinney level of, you know, turning it and making it about Jesus. Yeah. And about the same level of thought. Yeah. Name, image, and likeness. You guys remember, this was a thing from probably the, the 90s, maybe the early 2000s, where it was just billboards on the side of the highway. And it was kind of the same aesthetic. It was just a black billboard and there'd be white writing on it. And yes. it was like sassy God quotes. What was that love thy neighbor thing? I meant that. That'd be quotes and the, the trip attribution would be God. Right. I don't recall a like uptick in Christian brotherly love and a massive turning of the hearts of the American people towards the gospel due to that campaign. 
Well, but obviously that just means they didn't spend enough money on it, Matt. Sure. The problem was they couldn't get those on the television. Incredible. So we've got so oh, we've got some other examples here. Uh, Jesus was a refugee. He gets us. Jesus confronted racism with love. He gets us. Jesus called huddles too. I think that's a reference to the huddled masses things. So I don't know what that means. Also, uh, called a huddle is not a term. No. Jesus was sick of hypocrisy too. He gets us. And among then there's images which are about what you'd expect. There's appear to be a a young gentleman helping someone with a walker, so that's nice. Then there's just people carrying a coffin, which seems aggressive. Yeah. I think yeah. this has a lot of tonal issues, is what I think I'm saying. <laughs> we, we've discussed before, my the reason God will never let me be a billionaire is because I would wildly misuse those funds. And we've discussed that I would have kind of my rage projects that I would do just to amuse myself and to annoy others. <laughs> and in this moment, one of the things that I would do is create my own He Gets Us campaign, but it's all about Henry Winkler's, uh, Henry Winkler's character, The Fonz. No. Oh. And so, but all of the advertisements are made with the exact same tone. It's the same thing, same everything, but it's all about The Fonz and just trying to introduce people to the magic of The Fonz. Like, you'd have the slow motion of him hitting the jukebox to turn it on with the Chris Tomlin-style guitar playing in the background, you know, the the heartstrings thing. I feel like the He Gets Us the Fonz campaign could succeed where this one misses. I love that it 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 also ignores the uh, the Henry Winkler character from Arrested Development completely. Absolutely. Only focusing on the Fonz. <laughs> Absolutely right. Absolutely right. That's yeah. right. No Arrested Development. No Parks, no and, Parks Rec. and Rec. Fawns only. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, because, you know, what, the other thing you could do, because, you know, Fawns is just one syllable, and if you were going to spend, you know, real stupid money on this, you could do this. Think about recutting a bunch of worship classics where you drop the word Fawns in place of God. How great is our Fawns? Come sing with me. How great is our Fawns? And you could, ha- like, the commercial closes out, like, that kind of comes up, like, in the mix. Like, dude, that would be incredible. That would be absolutely wow. amazing. So it would be a thing. Maybe you would say like the, the point is to make the Fonz famous. Uh, yeah. And he'd spend $20 million <laughs> on two Super Bowl ads, which is what they have budgeted for two Super Bowl ads. And people would say, Gosh. but it's it's an iconic character. The, the jacket is in like the Smithsonian. He's already famous. <laughs> and you'd go, well, you could always stand to be more famous. $20 million on two commercials. What could you do with a billion dollars that would actually help someone? Quite a bit, man. Quite, yeah. quite a bit. Like that would actually just help somebody instead of putting commercials and billboards out there. Now let's here. We're going to do some quick math, but play, play Jeopardy music in your head. Legally distinct thinking music. You may think this sounds like Jeopardy's music, but we changed it just enough to make it legally distinct. Very, very good. <laughs> Speaking of videos, that was an idea I had for a video when I was still making videos for the bridge that I never, uh, never actually made. So you're welcome. <laughs> you got it out there, Matt. Congratulations. Maybe now it will leave my brain. 
<laughs> I like the idea that you've just been walking around with that for like a year and a half. Yeah. Like, oh, I didn't get to make that one. Here's to answer Lee's question. So we did a quick Google of what is the average salary in the United States. Um, and apparently as of um, uh, 2022, the average salary in the United States was about $50,000 a year. And so some quick math suggests that you could take people who don't have a job and give 20,000 people in the United States a job with the average salary in the United States for a year. You could provide that level of support to 20,000 households My for a billion dollars. 20,000 households. Holy cow. Well, uh, that's an excellent one. Here's another one. I'm reading from a <clears throat> a article about a nonprofit in Georgia that uh, took it on them. Their thing is not making billboards. It's wiping out medical debt. Aha! So they have uh, purchased about $6.7 billion in unpaid debt and relieved 3.6 million people of that debt. The group says retiring $100 in debt costs an average of $1. Yeah. So I'm no math person. But thinking about that very quickly, it sounds like you could cancel a hundred billion dollars in medical debt <laughs> for just the cost of the Super Bowl commercials. You could cancel two billion dollars in medical debt. Now, here's what I'm saying: I think the odds of someone wanting to hear about Jesus and what you think about him would be much higher. If you had gotten them out of medical debt, then if you made a weird low effort commercial that was just text over a still image. Thank you about the low effort, because here's the thing, as, as a pastor and someone who's worked in outreach for a long, long time at this point, um, you don't actually tell anybody how to meet Jesus in this super expensive commercial. We're not actually even getting there. The, 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 if, if the commercial completely accomplished its goal, it's that someone would go, huh. I'm aware of Jesus, ah. and Jesus understands what it's like to have a hard time. <laughs> yeah. It's also like, so it doesn't work on that level. It's also not like good in any kind of, <laughs> not that art can be good in an objective sense, but, you know, the Renaissance, certainly a lot of money that was not spent on, you know, feeding people and whatnot. But you you walk in the gates of heaven at the Florentine Baptistry and you think, now that's something. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if like, you, know, you walk through the Sistine Chapel, you go, I don't know if I agree with all the Pope stuff, the Michelangelo stuff, but an effort was made. This is impressive. <laughs> yeah. It's telling a story. It's you've got my attention. Yeah. Well, going for just a brief moment to the medical debt thing. This is like a, you know, obviously a microcosm, but I, I think it, it illustrates the point. So like, yeah, I've had a weird life and, you know, I've had ups and downs and I've had multiple times in my life where I was stranded in a place I needed to get out of and I had to beg a stranger for a ride. That's not a fun place to be. I wouldn't recommend it. I've had to do that a few times. And fortunately, I've had some kindly people who are able to help me out. And you know what? Whatever ideology you want to tell me about during that car ride, I'm happy to listen. If you, I need a ride. If you can give me a ride, I'm not saying I'm agreeing to it, but if you're, if you want to tell me about whatever you're telling me about, I'll hear you out. That's cool. How much more if you cancel all of my medical debt? You know what? I will, I will hear, hear the sales pitch for your secret society. Like, I think 
think you could get a lot of receptivity if you would actually help people. Yes. It's literally a metaphor that is used by Paul for what Jesus did for people was relieve their debts. Yeah. It works. But here's the good news. Uh, The campaign, the He Gets Us campaign, is a project of the Servant Foundation. Well, that sounds good. Yeah. An Overland Park, Kansas, that sounds less good, nonprofit that does business as the Signatory. That sounds a little ominous. Are you trying to sound like a Bond villain? Does have a little (laughs) bit of secret society that Batman fights. Yeah. Stick there, the Signatory. But the donors backing the campaign until very recently have remained anonymous. Oh, that's never a good sign. Probably, you know, because you know, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing and they want to get their reward in. Sure. Oh, no, it's because it's one of the main ones is the billionaire co-founder of Hobby Lobby. And uh, several other ones have uh, given money to groups marked as hate groups by the SPLC. Oopsies. Yeah. Good times. Yeah, that's um that's not great. A billion dollar three-year campaign would be on par with advertising budgets for major brands such as Kroger grocery stores, said Laura Harding, associate professor of marketing at Belmont University in Nashville. Here's the thing: I know what Kroger is gonna get out of that much advertising. Sure. Right. They're gonna sell more kale. That's right, they're gonna buy some kale. Maybe a nice value brand jar of mayonnaise here and there, and Kroger will will get some of that. I don't know what they plan to get out of this, which makes me think the signatory is maybe <laughs> not entirely on the level. <laughs> call me, you know, call me skeptic if you must, but shadowy cabal <laughs> puts out supposedly feel good, simple messaging that they're willing to spend a billion dollars on. Yeah. Who knows? But, um, we'll enjoy the game nonetheless. And as you maybe take your time, if you're going back to refill your cheese dip, celebrating an Eagles, a good, a first down, and you look at it and you think, well, that's really stupid. Uh, they probably go spend that money on something more evil. And they probably were going to before they did this. So small victories. That's what I say. In a sense, it's a win. Indeed. And on that, we will declare emergency off. We will move on to your fine questions. If you have a question for us, you can write in to some addresses I'll give you at the end. Or you can scroll down to your episode description. Click the links you find there. It'll take you right to there. First question comes in and says, oh, speaking of money, I'm getting the... P- I'm just getting to the point in my life where I make enough money to have savings. How do I know how to balance saving with giving? And I I think it's a great question. And Lee, I know we have a lot of folks who are kind of in that point of life. Um, When you're, you know, in your teens, twenties, let's be honest with the current economy, maybe well into your um, thirties. The idea of uh, giving versus saving versus spending is all pretty theoretical because you just got to, keep a roof over your head. So when you, someone has gotten to that point where they can start making these kind of decisions, how do they go about thinking of it in a way that is going to be not overcomplicated, not over guilt ridden and all those things they may have picked up along the way. 
That's a really, really good question from our question asker, and and it's a great setup by you. And I think that some of some of my response to this is going to depend on what a, a person's background is who's listening to this. I mean, c- certain folks that grew up in situations like I did um, in in a specific kind of church were basically told there is a holy and right percentage that you are supposed to designate for the work of the Lord, and that is supposed to be the very first thing that you get out of the monies that you make every single month and you consecrate that and give that to him and you don't question it and you don't talk about, you know, any other thing that you would do with it. <clears throat> and um there's a couple of problems with that. One, the it that approach from a leadership perspective or for an, from an organizational perspective has never um worked on anybody because who cares? And um I'm not going to give you access to my money. Um, and I think that's the real problem with like, you know, like there's, there's certain people have, who have come up in the, in the Christian thing that have said like, okay, well this percentage of your money, you need to hold back and save. And this percentage of your money you need to give away. And if you don't do that, you're doing it wrong. And um, you need to get your, you need to get your house together and you need to get your life together. Otherwise you should feel bad. And exactly like you're setting up, Matt, I mean, the way the world is right now, the way the job market is, the way that uh, the way that interest rates have been, the way that inflation has been in the last, in the last year, it's like some of us, are, we're just like struggling to figure this whole thing out. I mean, if you have, if you have, uh, you know, college debt that you're trying to struggle with, I mean, we, we, we were talking about the he gets us thing with, with medical debt. And the, every time that you guys talked about it, I'm like, yeah, can we take the he gets us thing and funnel that towards some of that towards uh college kids, which is something that I have in in my family. I've got a college kid right now and the the cost of college is insane. It's totally and totally insane. And so like people have people have debt like they've never had it before. People struggle in ways they never have before. And the the religious angle or you know, church angle of saying like, "Hey, here's the hard and fast rule for everybody." That does not work. And it doesn't work at every level. One, you won't get it from people. Two, it is as far away from anything that that God cares about as you could possibly get. And it's and this is super important, and I'm gonna go somewhere with this. And it's really not fun. And that's important. Like when we look at when you look at like saving. Um, that's something that, you know, it's like if you're, if you're married, if you have roommates, if you have a situation where you're sharing in any kind of financial, whatever with, with other people, you've got to come to some agreement with how you're going to work out all that kind of stuff between the people that you're in relationship with. And you should, if, if you're able, you should be able to put some back for a rainy day for, for emergencies, for car repairs, for, you know, uh, stuff that just stuff that you don't know that's going to happen. But as far as, and I want to speak specifically to giving to the Lord, giving to the Lord should be about several things. Giving to the Lord should be about joy. It should be about adventure and it should be about partnership in something that you otherwise would not be a part of. And that is a super, super important thing. When you give part of your money to any kind of charitable organization, but specifically in our case, because of, you know, our podcast and and some of the direction of this question, when you give money to someone who's 
doing some kind of ministry pursuit. That should be because you believe in those people, you believe in the work that they're doing, and you either don't have the proximity, the relationship, or the experience to actually do what they do. And when you support somebody financially, lo and behold, and this is magical and it's so cool, and I can't possibly overstate it, you become a partner with that person and you have a share in everything that they do. That is true, that is real, and that is super duper cool. So people that that Christy and I support in ministry and charities that we support, they are always people that we, like, they are doing cool work to help people that we care about, but we don't have the proximity, the relationship, or the experience to be able to help those people. So since we don't, since we're not where they are, and we don't have those relationships, or we don't have the ability or the experience, we support those people financially. And now we are an actual and real partner in something that we otherwise couldn't be a part of in any way. Dude, that is so exciting. Like, I, I get chill bumps when I think about it. I'm living my little life in this little small town in East Tennessee that I live in, but I am an actual, real, and important partner in cool things that are happening to serve groups of people who are experiencing injustice or poverty or difficulty, mental health issues, whatever. And I'm an actual part of making those people's lives better because I'm giving to that. Now, what if the church had always sold it that way? By the way, that's the way the Bible sells it. The Bible sells it as the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The book of Philippians says, when you, like Paul says, when you help me, you're an actual partner of, of everything that I'm a part of. You're, you're actually, I couldn't do what I'm doing without you. That's the way the Bible sells um, giving your money to some other charitable or ministry work of somebody else. If we had always been sold that way, I think people would be much more excited about giving their money rather than like, okay, it's boring, it's stupid, you don't even have to think about it, you don't participate in in in, in, in any way, you just give this percentage. The, the church that I grew up in, they took all of that, they lumped it into an organization, they didn't even tell you who they were supporting, you didn't even know. It was called the cooperative program, and it's like every now and then you might see somebody's face, but we didn't know where it was going. We didn't know who it was going to. We didn't hear what their work was. They never got a chance to thank us, and we never got to really participate in in any part of it. That is a completely and totally backward way of doing that. Um, Again, just before I hand this thing off, the question that I think that you should be asking yourself is, even if all I have to give is a very, very tiny amount, even if I look at the, like, if I want to give something of the money that I have to help some organization, charity, or ministry, um, the question is, even if it's a tiny amount, what do I care about? Who is, who is someone and what is a cause where I want to make a difference in the world? Is anybody doing that work and do they need my help? Because if you give to that, then lo and behold, mystery of mysteries, wonder of wonders, you are an actual and real partner in their work. They could not do it at the exact same level without your support. That's exciting. That's adventurous. There's joy there. There's cheer there. You can be a cheerful giver in that way. The real question is, where's the world hurting that hurts your heart, and where do you want to get behind it? Fantastic place to start that off. Jed, where do we take it from there? That's certainly all great advice. It's just awesome and, and really, really well put. 
to go just super, super simple with this, I think the number one thing that I want to encourage you towards is just give something. It, it The dollar value doesn't really matter. Find something that you're passionate about, exactly like Lee said, but give something. And, and here's why I want to encourage you towards that. Last year, the statistics um, that I looked up anyway say that 50% of Americans did no form of charitable giving of any kind. Half of Americans did no form of charitable giving of any kind. And the reason that I mention that is that giving is one of those things that is easier to do once you get used to doing it. It's more Mm -hmm. fun to do once you get used to doing it. You will feel more comfortable with doing it once you get used to it. And one of the the kind of ideas that you will hear kind of bandied about, and actually you'll hear it in a lot of stuff that happens at churches too, is first, you have to get your financial house in order. Okay. You got to get everything squared away. You got to get your situation, you know, lined out so that eventually down the road, then you can give, then you can support (laughs) things. And the funny thing is it's an idea. It sounds like it makes total sense, man. I mean, it's very, it's very reasonable sounding because I've been involved in fundraising for a long time. I've talked about money with any number of people who are squarely in the 1% of top earners, um, you know, very, very wealthy people and consistently, man, I have had people who, um, are wealthy by any metric. Give me some variation on, Hey, look, the market, there's just so much volatility right now. It's just, you know, it's a tough market right now. Things, you know, it's tough out there and just, you know, well, you know, let's, you know, maybe next quarter, next year, let's take a look at it. But right now things are so tough. Here's the thing on that. The amount of freedom that a person feels to do what they really care about with their finances tends for most people to be a moving goalpost, right? Like a moment where your feelings and your emotions give you permission that, okay, now I have enough where I can actually start giving to other things. For an awful lot of people, that moment never, ever comes. Which is part of why in America, 50% of people last year did no form of charitable giving of any kind. And again, when I say none, I mean, regardless of dollar amount, I'm including people who would give a dollar. 50% of Americans gave nothing of any kind at all last year. And a big part of that is we have a lot of folks who are waiting to feel like at long last they have enough. And so, you know, maybe they can start giving. I want to be crystal clear, and Lee already pointed this, but it really bears repeating. When people start talking about money, there's very rarely any attempt to give a sense of scope or scale of the kind of money that we're talking about. When you hear, for example, from political campaigns, like one of the the things that they do pretty regularly is like, hey, $5 would help. So if you can give $5, that would be great. Is there any chance you can support our efforts with $5 today? There are plenty of people in America and there are plenty of people listening to this podcast right now for whom, no, I can't give $5. I do not have that to spare. I just I'm, – I'm not even sure how I'm going to buy my next meal. I don't. I don't have that. If you are hearing – if that's where you're at and you're hearing this right now, there is no guilt. I'm not saying that you need All to right. be giving. None of us are saying that you need to be giving. Dude, we've got your back. We're praying for you. We're pulling for you. There comes a point eventually though where you're pretty sure you're going to be able to pay rent this month. You're pretty sure that you're going to be able to buy your groceries this month. There's a little bit left over. 
What are you going to do with it? And I think that that's where this question asker is coming from. I don't know that for sure, but that's that's kind of the the operational model that I'm assuming. And again, the thing that I want to say to you is give something. Literally give anything. Actually, a good a good parallel is almost any lifestyle change that you're thinking of making in your life. Like journaling is a good example. Journaling is great for you. Like keeping a gratitude journal, really, really good. People are like, well, how much should I do? Any amount. It doesn't matter. Right. Do, do five minutes at the end of your day because doing five minutes of your journal is infinitely more than zero minutes of your journal. And it gives you something that you can build on. Three minutes of doing your journal is, dude, like for real, there's this language app, Duolingo, that most people know about, right? I'm trying to learn a language. Most days I literally do like three minutes, but I do it. I do it. And I've got my little streak. I'm up at like a hundred days. It's like yeah. three minutes most days, but I'm doing it. And it's infinitely more than if I wasn't doing it. Same thing works with giving, man. You've got to start somewhere. If you hope to give at some point, you've got to start somewhere. Again, if you're in a place where you just don't have it, that's cool. I'm not talking to you and there's no judgment. For someone like, ah, you know, basically I got what I need. Start with what you can do as long as you start. The starting is the key thing. Find something that you're passionate about, but start. That's how we begin this journey. Absolutely right. I don't care for that judgmental owl who's constantly trying to get me to spend more time on that app by telling uh-huh. me that I could just, if I just did 20 minutes, I'd learn so much more. If I wrote down every word after the lesson, I'd maintain it more. I'm not doing that. Doing one lesson, keeping the street going. That's where we are. As Jeff points out, that's plenty. I, I, I really like the way you frame this question because I think the, the savings account is a really interesting kind of flashpoint for a lot of the feelings that people have about money. People have about money as uh, Americans or where their culture is and particularly as Christians, because there's kind of two wildly differing points of thought that uh, Jed and Lee have both mentioned. And one is the, the, the Dave Ramsey thing where essentially your savings account is the most important thing in your world. It is your source of value. It is your source of security. It is your source of moral, uh, quality to have made these good decisions and have the, not be in debt and have this and all that, this, that, and the other. And that's of course, uh, patently insane. We've talked about that uh, several times, but then there's also kind of another side where your savings account is a measure of your distrust in God. <laughs> and, you know, to have, there's a quote, I, some missionary, I think maybe John Wesley, of, oh, if I am found with $10 in my pocket, I will have been a charlatan and a whatnot. First of all, 10 bucks in uh, the 18th century, more than you think it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, that's just not really anywhere in the actual Bible. Like if that's the way he felt about himself and to be fair to John Wesley with that quote, he was not, my understanding of the quote is he was not saying that about other people. He was saying that about him. So that's, mm-hmm. that's between him and God. That's cool. But that hardcore nature of kind of American evangelical Christianity combined with the fact that pretty much everybody in a forward facing role in American Christianity has part of their job as being a fundraiser yep. um, to varying levels that they will be upfront about that can lead to some weird thoughts about people holding on to their money instead of giving. And as we talked about with a lot of other things over the course of the show, what if your savings account had absolutely no moral or emotional value at all? What if it was just 
what it is. It was just a thing that represented how much money was in this account. Is that more than you need? Is it less than you need? Is there is it something you have plans for? Is it something that would give you the opportunity, as these guys pointed out, to be involved in cool stuff? Hopefully it is. If you're getting to that point where you see that number uh, picking up to points where you thought it wouldn't be, and that's an opportunity to do something cool. I will also add on the end here, you don't have to give to Christian stuff yep. to make a difference. You don't have to give yep. to church stuff to make a difference. Um, one thing you do, if you're a little salty about the way you feel the church is treating certain groups of people, you can give it directly to that. If you think the church in your area or writ large does a terrible job with uh, how they reach out to trans people, you can give to trans charities. You can give to other LGBT charities. That's great. You can do that. I, we are on this podcast fully of the opinion that that counts as doing good in the world and doing good with your money and we support it. We hope you will as well. We're going to move on to our next question here. It comes in and says, the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The idea of believing God struck me when I read that. Is that different from believing in God? How do I do that more? Another very cool question. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. And Lee, where do we start off? It is a cool question. As far as kind of, the, it's it's interesting when you look at, um, when you look at, you know, super old texts that have been translated into a different language. Sometimes we get the prepositions right. Sometimes we don't. And so sometimes when you read these things in English, is that is that exactly what it was saying in the other language? Not necessarily all the time. I am not a, an expert in ancient Hebrew, and I'm not going to make any hay with whether or not the prepositions are all coming over as far as the, you know, to believe in God and Abraham believed God. Um, but just to kind of answer what you're asking on a, on a surface level, you know, I think it's I th- I think this has for me where it comes to where the rubber meets the road in my own life is do the words of God have an impact on the way I see the world and the way I see myself and sometimes do I allow those words to to have um a greater impact than my own feelings there's this verse that I found um just to kind of illustrate what I'm what I'm trying to say, this comes from the in the New Testament in the the book of First John, in chapter three. It says, "This is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything." Um, and what John is saying to these people is, there are going to be times when. Y- you're going to feel some things about yourself and you're going to believe some things about yourself that are not true. And they're going to be, they're going to be mean things. They're going to be condemning things. They're going to be things that make you feel like you are disqualified and that you don't count and that you're not acceptable and that you are out. And, um, when I'm feeling things like that about myself, that's when I go to, that's when I go to the words that God has said and he, that he's revealed in the, in the scriptures. And I, I take those words and I believe them, um, that, that I, I am saying to God, I am going to, I'm going to take these words that you're saying about me, that you say that I'm lovable and I'm going to believe you that that's true. My own heart is telling me I'm not lovable and that I'm not acceptable. I'm going to believe you instead of my own feelings. And the the reason that i'm able to do that and the reason that i'm able to kind of turn my 
attention to the words of God and his encouragements and his blessings, and I'm able to take them in and f- and and believe them sometimes over my own emotions and my own feelings about myself is that he has proven to me in my relationship with him and in my experiences with people who know him that he is a trustworthy person that he's a person that I can believe i think you know for someone to believe that there is a god out there that's one thing like yeah i don't really know him we don't really have any experiences together we've never really hung out i believe there probably is a god that's a thing, and that may be where somebody is, and that may be where you are, and that's totally cool. And I'm, I'm not casting any aspersions on that or making any judgments or anything like that. The place, in the, the place that I've gotten to in my life, and I'm, I'm guessing it's a similar place to where this guy Abraham got, was I've had certain experiences with this person that, I've, that I believe in, and those experiences have led me to this place. I can trust what he says. And that's important because sometimes my own heart tells me really awful things about my own self. My own feelings and emotions sometimes tell me I'm not wantable, I'm not wanted. I'm not lovable, I'm not wanted. I'm not loved, I'm not acceptable, I'm not accepted. But when I look at the words of the Bible, what God says to me is, actually, you are lovable and I love you. You're wantable and I want you in my family and in my home and in my heart. You are acceptable, and I accept you. And I've had enough experiences with him and with people who know him where I believe I can trust you. And so it's not just that I believe that there is a God or that he's there or whatever. I've actually come to the place where I believe his words, and sometimes I let his words drive the bus instead of my own emotions. I'm not saying I've cornered the market on what that meant for Abraham to believe God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But in my own experience in my own life, um, that's what it means for me, that, that deeper than believing that, the, that God exists, and I believe in his existence in general, I've come to actually have experiences where I believe he's trustworthy. And so sometimes I listen to his own words uh, in my own head and heart louder than, than my own, because sometimes my own words are troubling and his are kind. And that's a place that I'm trying to get better at. A fantastic place to start that off. Jed, where would we take it from there? Love everything Lee said. So one of the things that I have found to be true from – so I pretty regularly as part of my work have to consult with people that are different kinds of subject matter experts. They might be good at a certain kind of media production or they might be good at a certain way of helping people or or whatever. But one of the things I find really, really often is that people who have a real depth of expertise in whatever their field is – the stuff that they tell me is often counterintuitive. Like mm. I often go into situations saying, well, I assume that if we want to do X, Y, Z, then we got to do ABC. And I know it's, that's, that's not how it works at all. Like, like a, a really easy example, right? It's like, um, and we've all did, done this as kids. Like if you ever, you know, swam in a pool before, right? Like you, you think I'm just going to hit this water really, really hard. And that's going to, what makes me swim fast. And that's, that's not going to make you swim fast. And if you, if you work with an actual swim coach who really knows how to swim fast, they'll tell you it's almost the opposite of that. You, the, the thing, what your intuition told you is, is really not the way to go. Both in my experience of reading the things that Jesus said in the Bible, but, and also in my just own experience as a Christian and trying to walk with God, God very often has what to me feels like counterintuitive advice. 
advice that's like, man, I, I don't see any way that that can be true. And in fact, so like this relates back to our previous question, like, dude, I don't want to do without money. I don't, I don't want to be broke. I don't want to not be able to pay my bills. And what makes sense to me is I will have as much money as I can get and I will put it in a big pile and then my pile of money will comfort me. And that is, <laughs> that is my financial plan. And like that's, I mean, I'm saying it in a funny way, but like, there's a big part of my brain. That is exactly what I, what I think it should be. If you read Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks directly about this and he says, that's not it, dude. That's, um, um, speaking as the person who literally designed human life, that's not the way you want to do it. Put, putting all the money in a pile and letting it comfort you won't work. Um, it will almost make you look silly if you try and do it that way. That that's not, that's not what you should do. And a big part of an authentic Christian life is being prepared to have that conversation with God of like, yeah, but I don't, I don't see it that way, man. Like what, what, what are we going to do here? Similarly, I go to God and I say, I have enemies. I have people that I don't like them and they don't like me. What are we going to do with the enemies? My idea, I would smash them. My enemies should be smashed. That I think I think we should all agree on this. And Jesus very persistently keeps coming back to, you should love them. And to be clear, I don't like that idea at all. That sounds like a terrible idea. My enemies, I hate those guys. Exactly. <laughs> and the thing is, and, and I think this is something to really try. This is something I'm trying to wrap my brain around. I, I offer it to you as well. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. When Jesus offers these counterintuitive approaches to life, it's not because he's trying to harsh my buzz and it's not because he's trying to ruin my life. It's because it's like, dude, if you want to know how to have a really good life, this is how you have a really good life. Yeah. When you hoard your resources, you will not have a good life. When you find ways to be generous, you will have a good life. When you try and smash your enemies, you will not have a good life. When you try and love your enemies, what, in some weird way, you will have a better life. I came that you have life and that you have it to the full. This is what I'm trying to teach you how to do. I'm trying to teach you how to live a new kind of life. And if you're anything like me, and I, for your sake, I hope you're not, but if you're anything like me, when someone, including God, offers an idea that's counterintuitive, your first response is, that can't possibly tr be true. I hate that. I'm not going to do that. I will now storm out of the room and slam the door on my way out. But again, a big part of this Christian life, and to answer your question directly, a big part of not just believing in God, but believing God is to be willing to say, all right, let's talk this out. If hypothetically loving my enemies was even an option, which it can't be because it's a completely bonkers idea, but if it was, what would that even look like? And God might suggest to you, why don't you just start by praying for them? Like, you don't have to do anything else. Just, just pray for them, like, like at all. And then like a child, I, and not in a good way, I roll my eyes and I stamp my feet and I say, fine. And then I try it and I find it does help. And then I don't want to admit that because I don't want to admit that God was right because that, then he would know that and he would feel reinforced. And I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> it, am I, am I describing basically pitching a tantrum towards the almighty? Yes. Yes, I am. But I, I think like for real, I think that's a big part of, um, what it means to live a Christian life. and. To link that idea of Abraham believed God, there's a part where Paul says, work out your salvation. Work it out. Believing God, not just believing in him, but believing the things he says is a thing that you work out. You work it through. You, you, it's not just, okay, God, if you say so, uh, but you, you work it through in a relational sense. For what it's worth, man, it's not the, the easiest process in the world, but I have found it very rewarding and very beneficial. 
I'd really encourage you to consider it. Absolutely right. I think that's all fantastic from these guys. Uh, to kind of put a bow on that, I think it, it's worthwhile looking to the point where this happens for the first time in Scripture. It's referenced a bunch of times. It first happens in uh, Genesis 15, where uh, God is promising Abram at the time, uh, pre-conversion, I guess, uh, that he is he will have descendants. By this time, very old, wife also very old. They were trying to get around this. And said, look up the sky and count all the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. I think it ties in exactly with what you guys are saying, because that's crazy. Yep. To talk to someone who is, at this point, an octogenarian, very old, whose partner is also very old, they have not had any children yet, and say, not only children, but stars in the sky level. You cannot imagine the stars. That's banana pants. That's cannot be true in any way that Abraham at the time can conceive of. And it does not say that he he fell and worshipped. It does not say he wept with the the truth of it. It does not say that he immediately began doing the right thing. He still had many, many screw-ups to go, especially around this. The, the next one, the next uh, chapter heading in Genesis is Hagar and Ishmael. Again, oops. <laughs> <laughs> but to hear the crazy thing and think, okay, I guess. That's credited to him as righteousness. And uh, to take it back to uh, the very good points that both Jed and Lee made, um, love your enemies. You are a lovable person who has a future. These are things that I think if we're honest with ourselves sometimes feel just as crazy as anything that God said to Abraham in that moment and to just not give in to the doubts and consider that this might be true, I think is a powerful, powerful thing. We'll move on to our final question here. It comes in and says, I've heard people talk about what guarding your heart doesn't mean in the context of purity culture, watching secular movies, all that stuff. And I'm with, I can get down with that, but what does it actually mean? I think another very good question. And Lee, over the years, we've definitely talked about guard your heart in the sense of uh, particularly the purity culture stuff um, and what that's uh, just a gross oversimplification or misuse of that term. But I like the, the going straight for how maybe we can go to a positive sense of defining what do we think that does mean? Yeah. Um, it's a fantastic question. This is so great. I'm so glad that you wrote it in. And I would say one of the greatest failures of kind of the evangelical Christian thing, um, not the greatest sin or failure or whatever, but, but a huge one that has done a massive disservice to people having any kind of actual growth in discipleship or just growth in in their the health of their relationships and everything is that the evangelical movement was basically like one of the things about the movement itself is from the very top they didn't they devised and preached the idea that there is one cookie cutter version of morality and behavior and every single person has to behave in the exact same ways there is one kind of candidate you must all vote for. There is one type of music you must all listen to. There's one type of clothing that is acceptable that everybody has to wear. One type of media that we all take in, books that we read and movies that we watch and everything. There is exactly a just a cookie cutter morality and behavior. 
And that is an absolute travesty because every single person is unique. Every single person has different experiences, backgrounds, makeup. Everybody has different personalities, history. And, and by the way, everybody has different hangups. Everybody, like, people find joy in different things. People find inspiration in different things. And people find um, difficulty and problems in different things. One of the most important, and, I, you know, I, I did youth ministry for, um, for just about 20 years. And one of, to me, if somebody was to say, like, what's one of the most important things that you learned in doing youth ministry or that you would tell people getting into youth ministry, I would say that you need to give people the, the dignity, the courage, and the agency to have this concept in mind. Do I know what works for me? Do I know what makes me find joy and what my like triggers are? Do I know what makes my life better and worse? When I experience something, do I have the humility and the honesty to look at myself and say, was that good or was that bad? Um, I, <clears throat> I think a world where everybody that follows Jesus learns how to in the context of great relationships and, you know, uh, leaders you can trust and stuff like that, which is another whole, that's, that's an, that's another whole problem that we have in our culture. Do you know what it looks like to know yourself? Do you know you? That's my question about the whole, the whole thing about guard your heart is, can you look at your own experiences, your own background, your own self and and sometimes with people you trust and say, these things are things that my, in my personality and my experiences and my issues or my traumas or my whatevers, these are probably things that I should stay away from. These are things that I enjoy. They make me happy. I, they make me relaxed. They, I, I, they entertain me, whatever. The problem is, is that we can't make a set of experiences that are always and forever right slash wrong for every single person that believes in Jesus, bar none. We can't do that. So the real question with guard your heart is, do you know yourself? Do you know what brings you joy? Do you know what fills you up? Do you know what empties you? Do you know what, what takes you out? Do you know what takes you off your square? Those are the questions. I think that guarding your heart is going to look like a different experience for every single person. But we have like, especially my generation of Christians, we were never given the, the dignity or agency that there, that there would be anything different about my experience and Matt's or my experience and Jed's or their experience from each other, that we would all be the exact same. So that would be my, that would be my encouragement is start to learn how to know yourself more, start to know how to, how to, how to measure your own experiences and to be, and to be honest and and excited about the possibilities of that. What do I enjoy? What do I love? What do I not love? And what what are my triggers? And what what trips my traumas? And what upsets me? And do I know what those things are? I think if we start to to have just the agency of getting to know the individual you, you're going to have a much better. You're going to be on a much better path to learning what it what it actually means to guard and care for your own heart as you walk through different experiences. That's a wonderful place to start that off. Jed, where do we close it out? 
I want to pick up exactly where Lee left off. I love everything Lee said. That is so good. So as a case study, um, I'll walk you through what it means for me. Uh, and if it's useful to you, that's great. And if it's not, well, skip on a bit. But um, to me, guarding my heart means being on the lookout for impulses uh, that make me a worse person. Um, or to put it maybe less judgmentally, that make me a person I don't want to be. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that that is interesting that is kind of a, a a weird outgrowth of evangelicalism in the U.S., right, is people talk a lot about being a sinful person, which is kind of co-equal with being a bad person. But we very rarely talk about just, do you know the kind of person you want to be versus the kind of person you don't want to be? And that goes right along with those issues of agency that Lee is discussing. You, you have the right to figure out the kind of person that you want to be and figure out a way to be that person. And you have the right to figure out the kind of person you don't want to be and find ways to, to step away from that. And so for me, there's a kind of person that I don't want to be, that I know I am capable of being. And I am, there are certain kinds of thinking and certain kinds of impulses that lead me to being that person I don't want to be. Is that person sinful? I don't know, man, but I know I don't want to be that person. And that's, that's the thing that, that I'm really talking about. So the first one for me is cynicism. I do not want to be a cynical person. I, I don't, I don't like cynicism. I don't like it in myself. I actually don't like it in other people. I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's false wisdom. I don't think it helps anything ever. And I have already given up too many years of my life to being a cynical jerk. Like, I just do not want to be that guy. Is it sinful to be cynical? I don't really know, man. But I do know that that's not the guy that I want to be. Um, And I know that cynicism is something that for me, that it makes everything worse and it wants to become a part of my identity. For me, I'm not putting this on anybody else, but for me, when I go down the path of cynicism, it's not just that I'm thinking cynically, but that. It wants to restructure the way that I think of myself and the way that I think of my place in the world. I don't want to do that. I, I, I don't want to be – I don't want to think cynically, and I don't want to be a cynical person. Um, similarly, despair. Like, man, I have, I have given so many days of my life over to despair, and I don't want to be that guy. I am critically – and I want to be crystal clear on this. I am not telling you that it is sinful to be despairing. I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying I don't want to be despairing. Um, I, I want to be a hopeful person. And for me, when despair gets in there, it kind of wants to take over and it kind of wants to color everything and everything that I do and everything that I say and everything that I think. And it, and it wants to, to reshape that Uh, one more, just for me, not putting it on you, just saying for me is self-pity. Um, it is really easy for me to get into a self-pity thing. Um, not saying that's a sin. I'm just saying that's not who I want to be. I don't want to be a self-pitying person. And, and I am good at it. I'd like to pause and note, and this is the cruelty of life, cynicism and despair and self-pity. I am so good. I am so talented. You have no idea. I can be like the Rembrandt of these things. I just don't want to be that guy. I've, I've spent enough time being that guy. I've spent enough time thinking those ways. I've, I've, I've given enough to that. So for me... I guard my heart against those things because I, I know where they lead and I don't want to go those places. You know, one of the things that's funny, if you hang out a lot around people that are involved in addiction recovery, um, 
you'll find that there's all different kinds of substance abuse and there's all kinds of, of kind of substance dependency. And the following is not true for everybody, but it's something that you'll hear a certain number of people say. It's like, look, dude, I can't have one drink. I know that there are people who can, but like, I can't, I, I either have no drinks or I have all the drinks. And therefore I don't have any drinks because I'm not, I know where that leads. As a, as a friend of mine once put, when I drink, I break out in handcuffs. I know where that goes for me. So I don't, I don't do that anymore. Right. For me, like it is hard when I start to go down that cynicism and despair and self-pity, man, it's hard for me to have one drink. It's hard for me to have one good swallow of self-pity and stop myself there. When I start to go down that, I, I, I want to have all the self-pity. I know where that leads me, and I don't want to do that. I'm not saying that any of those apply to you, but to, to build on the amazing stuff Lee said, those are things that are triggers for me. Those are things that make me into a person that I don't want to be. Whether it's an issue of sinfulness or not, I just don't want to be that guy. The more that you discover those things in your own life, the more that guarding your heart in a sense that, that is applied to you the more that will help you and I think lead to having a life that you feel better about and being a person that you want to be more. I think it's beautifully put on both of these guys' parts. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumble.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, you can click either of those links in your episode description and take out the song this week. We're going to take out with a Jed Brewer worship song called You Have Better. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Just remember, we, lo- we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. You have better for me than I have for myself. You were set in up heaven when we deserve hell. You offer me things that will not fade away like the love of a father who is here to stay. And I don't know how to be happy and I don't know how to sense to me, but it was all just counterfeit. You have better for me than I have for myself. You were setting up heaven when we deserved hell. You offer me things that will not fade away like the love of a father who is here to stay. And I want things that are that would kill me and